Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 65 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm one of your co-hosts, Giraffe Neck Mark, Mark Luino, alongside James Chiato. Jeter had no range. Talking about the New York Mets now. As we all know, we are in a lockout, so the news and the stories are a little bit slow. But since the last episode, which we talked about Max Scherzer, there actually has been some stuff to talk about. Javi and Stroman, they're gone. They've gone elsewhere to, you know, different pastures of life. We got manager talks. We got to, you know, figure out who's going to be the manager of this team because we still have no idea. And the list of candidates seems to be growing. Some good, some bad, some crazy names that don't even make sense have been thrown out there. So we'll talk about all those guys that are included as well. Gil Hodges, quick shout out to him. He finally made the Hall of Fame. Huge shout out to Gil Hodges, a long time coming. So I know a lot of Met fans, especially the older ones, are super happy about that. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about the CBA because I saw some people reach out to us on Twitter and wanted to hear our thoughts on the lockout and the whole collective bargaining agreement and the negotiations, what's going on there. So that's what you're going to get here on episode number 65 of the Messed Up Podcast. Make sure you're following us on all our social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Messed Up Podcast. No, just at Messed Up, I'm sorry, on the YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast, where the video content goes. Uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you can find them. You can find us, drop us a five-star rating and a review. And also, we want to give a quick shout to our monthly supporters. Uh, you can do this through Anchor, Matt Franklin and Graham Hickson. You guys are legends, $4.99. Really do appreciate you guys supporting monthly. Um, if you feel like supporting the podcast as well, there should be a link somewhere in the description of this you know, episode, wherever you listen to it. So big shout out to all those guys out there supporting, as, long, as well as the viewers who just listen. We love you. Let's bring in James. How you feeling, James? I feel great. It was a great, another great week for the Messed Up Podcast last week. Our last episode was one of our highest uh, streamed ever, which was amazing. So shout out to all the listeners out there. It's great. It's fun that we're really feeling good about the Mets until this lockout kind of swept our legs from underneath us this past week and has really just blue balled the entire baseball community after two of the most exciting weeks that we've ever seen in an offseason period yeah no we were like the offseason was so sick it felt like an NBA or NFL offseason which always happens so fast it's in the blink of an eye and it felt like baseball was heading in that direction but of course this lockout hit and that changed everything and some of the moves that happened you know we got Scherzer Marte Canna Escobar but we did lose a couple guys mm-hmm. and some guys that we thought had a realistic chance going back to the Mets which were Marcus Stroman and Javi Baez yeah, yeah. Those are these were two of the last moves, like two of like the proverbial buzzer beaters right before the deadline hit. Really, Strowman was the buzzer beater. He kind of came out of completely nowhere and was like a little bit shocking. And we found out afterwards that he kind of signed his deal again for all listeners at home. He signed a three years, seventy one million dollar contract with the Cubs that has escalators up to being three years, seventy five million if he throws one hundred sixty innings each of the next two years. He turns out that he was negotiating this like a little bit in secrecy and actually flew to Chicago a day before any of these reports came out so he could be ready for his physical next day when Penn was getting to paper, which I thought was pretty interesting. And this 
like age of like hyper information. The fact that we, we they were able to keep that under wraps. Eventually, Marcus Stroman did break his own deal, which is also something that was pretty unique. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Like the Cubs, you know, their whole mentality moving forward as an organization that still seems to be up in the air. But it was also interesting to see that Marcus Stroman's market seemed to not really develop much, which was shocking because at the beginning of this offseason on the podcast, we were talking five for 125, and that seems like a pipe dream based on what he got paid. Yeah, but I think it's just because Marcus Stroman was much more concerned with that AAV rather than longer years with longer guarantees. Like we mentioned in a couple shows episodes ago, and we broke down how we thought his negotiation would go. That $25 million threshold we said would be in the top 10 um, average annual values of all starting pitchers in baseball. So... Clearly, it was more important to Marcus Stroman to guarantee more money right now than longer-term money is slightly less of a value. Because I think he's a guy who just believes in his own conditioning and his own talent and thinks that if he hits the open market in two or three years, depending on if he exercises his opt-out, he'll be able to get a contract with a similar value. Which, I mean, I I don't know if I would do it, but all the power to him for that. Yeah, and seeing that contract, too, I was a little bit shocked that the Mets weren't in on that for the the short-term deal of $25 million a year when it seemed like the five for one twenty five was realistic, so why not take the twenty five million a year on the shorter term? I was shocked that the Mets at least didn't have more of a push for Stroman, but it seems like from the start he wasn't coming back based on all the reports. Definitely, especially after the spending free. It felt it felt like neither of these guys were actually gonna come back. Like it seems like they negotiated with Baez, like for a brief instance before everything went crazy last uh weekend, last Friday. And then the money was too much and the years were too much, which clearly ended up being evidently true. And then Stroman just seems like they had really other other thoughts the entire time. I have to think that there's at least possibly some kind of way that he did maybe alienate himself with some people, either in the front office or in the like some of the team executives or even possibly in the clubhouse to the point where it was always kind of clear they weren't going to make him an, a serious offer to come back. Yeah, and one of the things that, you know, Billy Epler's talked about since coming in is that he wants to make, you know, a culture change. And that was the thing that Scherzer harped on too a lot in his press conferences, that there's going to be a changing of culture in New York. Maybe this doesn't include Marcus Stroman, um, and that could be part of the reason why they didn't want to bring him back. But that Epler soundbite came out right before the lockout, like right after the Stroman contract. Again, that was the night that the Mets did all their press conferences, but I think it was uh, funny and a little bit ironic that that all came out at the same time. And this. There's no doubt that, like, from a baseball perspective, Marcus Stroman's a massive loss for this team. Like, especially a team that needs consistent, reliable innings in a way as badly as the Mets with a very talented top of the rotation, but two guys who are pretty old, so just based on, like, logic and probability, like, more likely than most other guys to get injured. Then another guy like Carlos Carrasco, who's old and very likely to get injured. Then a guy like Taiwan Walker, who's young, but still very likely to get injured. It would help to have a guy like Marcus Stroman to give you, like, a bona fide 200 innings. So that does hurt, but again, it just feels feels like they never really made a serious push to retain him. No, and then with the Javi stuff, like you said, they were a little more engaged in talks from the beginning of the offseason when they didn't have a GM, and it seems like as soon as Epler came in, the value for Javi went right down for the Mets. Like, it just, they were still talking to him, apparently, but it didn't seem like the Mets were going to come anywhere even close to what the Tigers gave him, which came out to, what, 6 for 140? I believe it was 6 for 150. I'm looking it up right now. 6 for 140, which comes out to... Like a clean twenty three about million dollars a year for the next six years until Javi Baez is thirty four years old for someone who already struggles a lot with plate discipline and reaching for the ball. It felt like the Mets were going to be in on Javi if he signed the Stroman contract. You know what I mean? And I figured yeah. these two guys basically because their average annual value was similar, kind of just like swapped in what yeah. I thought they were going to get and what I think their real value is closer to. Like if Javi could have been the three for seventy five, I think the Mets might have jumped. And I thought Stroman was going to be the guy who walked out five for one twenty-five, but I don't know. Tough to tough to predict these things. It only really takes one team to blow that out of the water 
to lose a guy like Javi Baez, and that is eventually what happened. Yeah, and, you know, we will miss these guys. They were pretty, you know, big pieces, and Javi less because of how much time he was with the Mets, but he did have an impact in the second half of that team. He was really, really good with the Mets, so we are going to miss that bat. We're going to miss those arms, but we have made some really good acquisitions, and we've got a new team to be thinking about moving forward here, and part of that entire conundrum with this team is that we don't have a manager. No. We don't know who's going to be leading these guys, and the names are being thrown out there. I mean, it goes from Buck Walter to Bruce Bochy to Curtis Granderson and David Wright. It's all over the place. That Curtis Granderson um, report was insane on Friday night, but I want to literally just say one more line about Javi Baez because I think it's just pertinent because a lot of Mets fans are, at least were at the time, upset that the Mets lost Javi because they traded a big prospect to get him. And while that does feel bad, you got like, what, 120 Javi Baez at bats for like a, the first round pick from the year before. The only thing that would have made that worse would have been compounding the issue and giving Javi Baez a six year, $150 million contract. Like it's bad that the Mets got, or not bad, it's just not good that the Mets gave up a high draft pick to acquire Javi Baez for not that much time. He didn't really make any kind of difference besides making our draft pick better or worse, which actually fucked us up with qualifying offer stuff. But it would have compounded the problem if they would have given him too much money for a guy who I think skills would, could deteriorate quickly. Not that they will, not that they are bad right now. But there could there's there's a world where Javi Baez like becomes Eric Hosmer, and you kind of have to avoid those type of consequences at all costs. High variance is what you like to say, right? Yeah, and a guy who just could deteriorate quickly because he doesn't really have skills that age particularly well. Yeah, he's a guy whose his youth is almost one of his best tools. I yeah, it's say. his vibrance, his exuberance, his yes. like his athleticism, his edge. Yes, and uh, thirty five K rate at thirty two years old would be just an unmitigated disaster for a guy who can't play shortstop anymore. And with a, like a three percent walk rate. Yeah, too, it would be hitting twenty seven home runs in, in the cavernous confines of City Field. It'd be really bad. So this is okay. Yeah, this this is okay. We're gonna be fine. We do have a nice group of guys and a really solid roster that looks better, way better than last year's going into the season. Especially on the offensive side. I think they added a lot of depth. I think this is okay. Yeah, it's okay. And now we got to talk about who's going to be leading us. Because if you look at Mets Twitter, there seems to be one clear and obvious guy that everybody wants, and it blows the living hell out of my mind here that Buck Showalter seems to be the clear odds-on favorite by every single person in New York Mets world. It's crazy. Every single poll that goes up, Buck Showalter wins – the like he's been trending a few different times by a landslide. It's not even oh, close. in the seventies. No seventies. No it's yeah. like him versus the field. It's not even a competition. And then you hear like Steve Cohen say things like, "We would like to have someone here with experience." You've heard that word, be, that phrase, be thrown around a lot. Somehow the old people have infected some people from our generation to thinking that you need a, a proven commodity, a winner like Buck Showalter, which is crazy. But we should talk about the rest of the short list because I think there are some pretty interesting names on here. The other guys are Joe Espada, the Astros bench close coach, Don Kelly, the Pirates bench coach, and Matt Quattro, the Rays bench coach. Okay, yeah. Um, I like I like hearing anything with the Rays, let me tell you. But again, you the Rays, you have to think a bench coach on the Rays does probably not significantly less, but definitely a, like probably a portion less than some other bench coaches because they're all it's all numbers anyway. And like I didn't I didn't even know this guy existed. Like I at least heard of Espada before. Don Kelly's just he could be anybody. If Don Kelly <laughs> Like, if you walk by me right now, I wouldn't even have close to a clue. Don Kelly had that little spell with the Tigers, I think, in, like, the late 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. Because, really, I just, yeah. from this list, I focused specifically this episode about Espada and Showalter. Because I think those two seem to be emerging as the two front runners, along with Brad Osmus, who's not formally linked yet, but I just can't imagine him being far away. And Bruce Bochy got added to that list, apparently, tonight. Really? Guys that the Mets are seriously considering. And that is kind of an interesting name for me. If 
yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll get there. We will get there. Well, let's talk about Buck Showalter and Joe Espada first. Because like you said, and I agree with you, these are probably the guys that's between right now. Yeah, it seems like these are at least the two front runners in the pack. Espada's a guy I like a lot. I think there's a lot of good things you could say about Joe Espada as to how he could be a very effective manager of this team. Just to give a run-through of his credentials. He was a player in the major leagues and different major league systems from the late 90s through the early 2000s. He retired as a player in 2005, immediately jumped into coaching with the Miami Marlins, at the time Florida Marlins, the team he was last associated with as a player. Immediately was the hitting coach for their uh, A-ball team in 2006, the Greensboro Swarm or Hornets or some other stupid minor league city has been tossed around 12 times. He ended up being um, upgraded to the full minor league infield coordinator between 2008-2009, and from there he was picked up by the Marlins to be the third base coach of their major league team in 2010. So this is a guy who immediately knew he wanted to be a manager, never wanted to leave the game of baseball, and kind of rose up the ranks of a team pretty quickly that was doing some, I'd say some generally positive things in terms of player development this time. Not great, but the Marlins weren't like a shit show at this point. We all like to, you know, poke fun at the Marlins, but they have developed players pretty well throughout the history of their organization. I mean, the whole thing is just that they got rid of them as soon as they were any good, but you can name a list of about 20 guys that are legitimately good Major League Baseball players that came from that organization, and I'm sure Joe Espada had a little bit of hand in that. Definitely, or maybe not, because maybe we have to look at specifically infielders, a guy who came specifically from these teams. There's no way of telling, but it's just the fact that he rose quickly and people around baseball kind of started to take notice that this guy was an emerging talent. Just also as an aside, he coached with Team Puerto Rico in 2013, 2017 in the World Team Base. Team Puerto Rico. Yeah. So that uh, stint right there is the Marlins' third base coach, and 2013 is with Puerto Rico. The Marlins kind of saw him as a bit of a manager in waiting and wanted to send him back down to A-plus a ball Jupiter to be their manager for 2014. He immediately said, fuck that, and actually took a job with the Yankees' front office that season instead, which is a pretty interesting move, I think, for a guy who seemed to be being groomed as a manager who instead saw that after uh, front office experience. Yeah, and then... Not only that, he then, like, finds his way back into, like, a not manager role because he still hasn't had that yet, but he's bench coach with the Astros. I mean, well, no. he's found his way back into being that manager and waiting again. Absolutely. He took that front office job with the Yankees for two years, walked directly with Cashman and uh, Epler, and then <laughs> they— funny. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a reason all these guys are here. It's, a, it's still a boys club at the end of the day. Connections are— everything so then from that point the Yankees actually brought him back onto the field for a couple years to be their infield coach and third base coach until 2017 where the Astros hired him away from them to be their bench coach so this is a guy who was handpicked by the Yankees and Astros only a few years apart and at the time these were probably the two most cutting-edge organizations in all of baseball which I think is pretty important and the Astros are definitely still one of the most cutting-edge you know organizations in baseball for sure the Yankees are still up there too but they're not as probably advanced as they were during this time which is ironically some of the worst baseball they've ever played, which is kind of funny, but it seemed like they were ahead of certain things before other teams were, like player development, sign stealing, uh, breaking ball, breaking ball development, things like that. And then he also, in the last couple of years, interviewed for openings with the Rangers and Cubs, didn't get them, but there's a lot of strange connections that Joe Espada has to this team. I mentioned the WBC stuff with Puerto Rico. He coached Edwin Diaz, Seth Lugo, and um, I'm blanking right now. Francisco Lindor. Francisco, Jesus Christ. I forgot he was Puerto Rican. <laughs> and also that's uh, interesting because Steve Cohen's wife is Puerto Rican. That's something that also cannot be forgotten ever. And then he's connected to Epler from those Yankees days. And shockingly, I think I texted you this the other day. You might have forgotten it. But he was drafted in the second round of the 1996 MLB draft, Joe Espada, by the Oakland A's who were being uh, run by Sandy Alderson. 
So there's a lot of deep connections that run with Joe Espada here. It seems like it's pushing him towards the front runner for this job. Yeah, and I like the idea of bringing in Joe Espada because of who the other guy is. Now, I don't necessarily know if Joe Espada would be my number one pick in general, but when you're putting up against Buck Showalter, I definitely lead more in the Espada camp for manager uh, of the New York Mets. I just like the idea that he seems to be a guy that one of the smarter organizations in baseball valued and had a part of their managerial staff grabbed coaching him. staff grabbed him they said we want you yes and you're gonna be with us hand-picked yeah he was hand-picked he stayed there for a bit and whether it was between hinch and you know now dusty baker he was able to stick around so that means that this is a guy who's got some information people value his opinion people clearly understand or i should say people care about what he has to say I like the idea of Joe Espada. I know a lot of people are going to get super, super turned off by the idea of a first-time manager again, but I can't stress this enough. Everybody at some point has to be a first-time manager, and I went to war with a guy on Twitter the other day about this because for some reason, first-time managers, it's because we had Mickey Calloway and Luis Rojas, are considered to be almost like they're just incompetent, that they're morons. But if you go through the list of managers right now in Major League Baseball, especially some of the more successful ones, a lot of their success came as first-time managers. Just to rattle off some names here. A.J. Hinch with the Astros, won a World Series. He was a first-time manager. Brian Snicker, don't care how long he's been in the organization. He was a first-time manager with this Atlanta Braves team. Won a World Series. Dave Martinez, first-time manager. Won a World Series. I'm forgetting a couple names. Craig but, Council. Oh, Craig Council. Alex Cora. Kevin Cash. I mean, just because you're a first-time manager doesn't mean you're at a disability or at a disadvantage. Some of the best managers in baseball came from first-time managers. Even Dave Roberts, first-time manager with the Dodgers. And if you look at some of the managers in baseball who have been considered good, at least in their past, they were objectively much better when they were closer to being first-time managers, specifically a guy like Joe Madden. He had his best run of his entire career when he was a first-time manager, not his second stint or his third stint. Second stint was still good. I'd say it was honestly pretty good, but... Yeah, Buck Showalter is not like a second stint guy. This is a guy who just a transition now managed most of his games like close to the turn of the millennium. Like this is not a guy who should really even be involved. Well, I like you bringing up Joe Madden because Joe Madden was one of the guys who was a forward thinking guy. He was kind of ahead of the curve. Oh, way ahead of the curve. It blew by him so fast when he got to the Angels. That guy, I don't even know if he understands what's going on on the field anymore. He looks lost out there. But Joe Madden was he was forward thinking. He was ahead of the curve and he got blown by. This is what scares me about Buck Showalter is Buck Showalter was never ahead of the curve. No. Buck Showalter was uh, even with the curve. Whatever, you know, he was steady with what everyone else was doing in Major League Baseball. The game's changed a ton. I don't know if he's ready. Buck Showalter has almost never managed in a baseball where the, the curve existed. There was never a curve when Buck Showalter has been a part of this game. It was just a lot of guys like spitting tobacco and figuring things out. Like that's what baseball was for the first 100 years, 130 years of his existence. And that was a great sport. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I think if we could go back to a world where there was no data in baseball at all, there would be some kind of like natural fun to it still. But that's just simply not the reality we live in. There's no world where Buck Showalter really improves your team to the point where I think he should be considered over people who, you know, like data and consume data that have been parts of organizations that use data. I don't mean to interrupt you here, but I was going through like old videos on Twitter, just trying to find takes of Buck Showalter. Cause I want, I want to catch this guy in the act. There's not that many great videos of him out there just cause I don't think really people care too much about what he has to say. But I did find one where he was talking about Tony La Russa coming in and taking over for the White Sox. And he had a lot of high praise, but it also felt like a little bit of a pitch for himself as to why he would be a good manager in Major League Baseball nowadays. Buck Walter, you know, he is not a guy that probably uses a computer too often. And I know that's a little, that's a little like, you know, jokish, a little meme here and there. But 
Buck Walters still co- calls managing. He says it's an art and it's not a science. And right now the teams that are doing it the best are treating it like a science. And whether you want to believe that or not, it doesn't matter because it's fact. Definitely. And if you really want to dissect the most of the talented managers that we listed, they all come from organizations who do treat the game of baseball like a science because that's what it's been reduced to. For better or worse, that's the game we play, and those are the teams that win. That's how they approach this sport. Like, uh, let me give you an example. Like, a guy like Max Muncy. Let's just go ahead and talk about him real quick. A guy like Max Muncy for the Dodgers. You don't watch – he wasn't, you know, discovered by the Dodgers because of a feel. That was discovered because of data and information and statistics that they had on this guy. But the fact is, like, that the numbers really don't lie. And while there is some feel necessary, I don't even know if Buck Showalter has good feel. Definitely not. But, like, the point I was trying to get to before, and I completely lost the thoughts in my brain, is that a guy like Buck Showalter could probably still have value with the right organization in baseball. Like, an organization that is completely 100,000% all the way headfirst into data, years into the process, successful foundation, adequate staff around. Like, that's okay. Like, I kind of said this a month ago, and you jumped down my throat, that if you were a trillion percent data team, a guy like Buck or Clint Hurdle, or now like Dusty Baker with the Astros, could add something that the, that all the numbers in the world can't add. And like, well, you do have to tell that guy, like, you have to cut your balls off at the door. Like, you can't push back. Like, you could be the guy's guy. You can keep everybody loose. You can have your feel. But at the end of the day, like, we are making 99.9% of these decisions. And if you're okay with that, you want to be the dugout. You want to be the master of culture. That's okay. I just don't see the Mets organizational infrastructure able to do that right now. Or Buck Showalter being a guy who would even listen to that claim because he's been like a bit of a maverick his entire career yeah he's a bit of a uh he's a bit of a character himself and honestly at, at the manager position right now with the Mets I don't really want a character either I don't want a guy who's trying to steal headlines it feels like Buck Showalter is going to be stealing some headlines every once in a while which is not something that we really want to hear and that shocks me so much even more that these you know a lot of Mets fans out there are proclaiming from the top of their lungs that they want Buck Showalter I mean you go through the history of him as a manager and it is just mediocrity it really is really bad overall like you can dissect most of the things that Buck Showalter's ever done in the baseball field have been like, this guy's not really that good of a manager. This feel isn't that great. The Zach Britton decision in 2014 goes down, or 2015, 2015, goes down as probably one of the worst pitching decisions that's ever been made in a baseball game, ever. Yeah, like, I'm sure, you know, from some obscure game, maybe there's one worse. Let's describe the situation for everyone, just in case they forgot or weren't aware of it at the time. So, 2015, wild card game, they're playing the Blue Jays, and it's an extra innings too, right? He's the ninth or the 10th, 11th, something like that. It was very, it was, the game was very much in the balance. The game was on the line, and the Orioles had a chance to either keep it close or win the game. And instead of going to Zach Britton, who had one of the best reliever years of all time, untouchable. I mean, mentioned him in the loop episode two, uh, two episodes ago. He was literally disgusting on another planet. He was so 080 ERA in the season. So insanely good. And instead of going to Zach Britton, who, again, everyone around the league would have said is 100% the best closer in the game. He's the best pitcher in that rotation. He needs to be in. He goes, Ubaldo Jimenez. That's the guy I'm going to call to. We're going to leave in Ubaldo Jimenez, and the Orioles get knocked out of the playoffs. I mean, it's single-handedly one of the worst decisions, and of course a manager is not made by just one decision. No. But the idea is that the numbers there would have told you that Zach Britton comes in the game. And if Zach Britton blows it, you lost because you made the right decision. But no, Buck Showalter chose to lose this game because he went with feel instead, and his feel was so fucking bad. You don't even need one number involved to be completely aware that you should have a better pitcher in the game when you, at any moment your season could literally end. Like, why would you want a bad pitcher to have the ball in his hand when the season ends? There's no numbers involved here. 
Just you don't have a next inning that's guaranteed. So you have to treat every single inning like it's the last one. That is something that I would want an old school manager to really have in the forefront of his brain if I was to bring him in. That shows bad fields. That's not really a guy who fully understands, to use a word from Howie Rose, the gravitas of a moment, you know? Yeah. Uh like in Ubaldo Jimenez, it's not even like he was dominant that year either. He was he was very mediocre. So like the the decision is baffling on all fronts, and this is one of the lasting memories we have of Buck Showalter, and yet people are calling for this guy to be the definitive manager of this team after just being so critical of Luis Rojas and Mickey Callaway and previous managers for the decisions they make. We then want to go to a guy who couldn't have been given an easier decision, and he still fucked it up. And we could take these, like, single pitching decisions aside, because everybody makes bad pitching decisions. Like, everyone makes awful pitching decisions. Every single manager across baseball, no matter what anyone Twitter will lead you to believe, even Alex Cora fucks up a pitching decision sometimes, even though he has such great feel. Past that, Buck Showalter is still just entirely mediocre. The guy's managed 3,000 games in Major League Baseball, spanning from 1992. So before most of you guys listening, including Mark and I, were born, up until 2018 with the Orioles. And those last two seasons with the Orioles were bad. And then one of the worst seasons in baseball history is a 47-win team. But of course, that Orioles team, by the end of his tenure there, was piss poor, pitiful team. Almost tanked Buck Showalter's career 500 uh, win percentage. Somehow, this just actually shocked me. It made me stutter that sentence. Buck Showalter is so old that he has a tie in his record. Buck Showalter oh, has God. tied the game. 1995, the New York Yankees. Somehow there was a tie. I don't, I can't even fathom that. How'd that happen? I, I have no clue. How, I really don't even have the slightest How idea. could he have tied? Was that because that was like a post-strike year and it was short and they had a weird rule, like seven-inning doubleheaders or something? Maybe. How I, the I fuck? I don't know. We should do a whole episode one time. Buck Showalter's tie. <laughs> but, if he becomes the manager, we will. <laughs> 100%. But so again, this guy's been just mediocre for 3,000 games. And some people, like my dad this morning at brunch, was like, he never really had great teams. Well, I think a lot of people should realize that three times after Buck Showalter left organizations, the team began a run of success that was actually pretty significant. Twice he left the team, the next year that team won the World Series. Back-to-back jobs. The Yankees he left in 95, and the Diamondbacks he left in 2001. That is... Shocking shit. And he was very good in his last couple of years with those teams. The Yankees in 1993 won 88 games. 1994, season that ended in August, they went 70-43. and 43. One of the best teams in baseball. And 1995, his last year, another strike short season, he went 79-65. The Yankees had the wherewithal to get him out of the building, bring in Joe Torre and sustain a dynasty. With the Diamondbacks, took over the job in 1998. Didn't have a very good season, didn't have a very good team. Won 100 games in 1999. I don't think anybody in God's green earth would think that the Diamondbacks won 100 games in the year 1999. And then they were 85 and 77 the next year, and then he was gone. And then the next year they won the World Series. And then he actually was the manager of the Rangers. I didn't even know this. I was just about to bring that one up. When they traded A-Rod, he left them in 2006 after two straight years of hanging out around 500. But 2009, the team was a perennial powerhouse with first-time manager Ron Washington. Yes, which back-to-back World Series as well. Yes. So this guy seems seems to be not the best manager either, as well as being old and cr- uh, curmudgeoning. And listen, I'll, I'll play a little devil's advocate here for Buck Walter because I know we're, we're going a little hard on him. Um, but as you can probably tell, we don't want him as the manager. No. This is the reason we're trying to convince people. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day what we think because the Mets will make their decision and they're not listening to us and they don't give a shit what we have to say. But like to play devil's advocate, a guy that is being mentioned, Bruce Bochy, who I would prefer over Buck Walter, who's probably of a similar type of manager, is also below 500 for his career, but here's the big difference. He won three World Series. <laughs> yeah. The other thing with Bruce Bochy, though, that was kind of hinted at when he was like basically um, removed as a San Francisco Giants manager a few years ago, the mutual agreeing to part ways, which is the gentleman's firing. 
Yeah, you're either fired or you can step down. Yeah, because, I mean, Bruce Bochy is a legend. He's one of the most successful managers in the history of baseball. But there were rumblings that he was pushing back against the organizational philosophy and didn't necessarily believe in what they were doing. And this is after the Giants were on the cutting edge when they were winning those World Series. They were a very early employer of analytics, but I guess only to a certain degree. And now I think we can all tell that the Giants' organizational philosophy is nothing short of genius and that if you're pushing back against it, I'm not sure if – you're ready for the modern game of baseball. But maybe that taught Bruce a lesson. He realizes now that he could have made a gigantic mistake leaving that team before their second dynasty. Yeah, and I definitely think you know that's also worth noting, too, that the, the pushback there, because another guy that Mets Twitter loves to hear, although he's not connected, thank God, Mike Schilt, yeah. also fired because of pushing back against yeah. these analytics things. Like, There's a reason, guys, that we see organizations constantly trying to get smarter people in there, not going back to old school. Remember when Tony La Russa got hired? Everyone was like, what in the world is going on here? Jerry Reinsdorf is just an old, crazy old man, and he wants to remember the glory days. But we all know that that's probably not going to end up being the guy who leads them to the promised land, just based on how things looked last year. It's a great team, but Tony La Russa really didn't make them much better. And I feel like that's going to be the same thing that happens if Buck Showalter comes here, is I think the Mets will probably be just fine. I don't think he makes them a team that's like all of a sudden terrible, but I don't want to give him credit for when the Mets play well because I do think the team is good and it has nothing to do with him. I think that's also kind of the crux of what everyone out there should be taking away from this discussion in general is that the manager in a baseball team is really not the be-all and end-all or the make-or-break-it point of a team like it probably once was in like the 70s, 80s, and points in the 90s. Like This is just going to be a guy who's like steering the boat, driving a nice boat, and he's at the back with the rudder making sure everything's going according to plan. Like, maybe he's an agent of chaos and just rips it all the way in one way. You just spin in circles. Maybe he's not paying attention and steers you the wrong way. But generally, there's not the highest bar in modern baseball to manage successfully. No. And, I mean, we've seen incompetent managers, you know, win World Series. And we've seen guys that have done less of jobs that have won World Series. So, just because Buck Showalter could possibly be here doesn't mean that the Mets will be bad, and it doesn't mean that they will be good. It di- still does come down to the players on the field. They need to play to their best ability, and they need to have good seasons, and there has to be a lot of things that go right to win a World Series, but it just feels like bringing in Buck Showalter kind of is against the whole philosophy that the Mets seem to be going for, which is trying to be one of the smarter organizations, or at least build to be one of the smarter organizations, and that feels like a step backwards. Again, that is just unless they decide to completely neuter him. If they neuter him, it could be it could be okay, but I just don't... And can Buck Showalter be neutered? That's I don't, thing, I don't he's know. A, he's a wild man. He's a big personality. I mean, during the Astros-White Sox playoff games, he was pissed off about the shift. He was saying that the shift was costing teams hits or, or costing teams runs. And it was like, no, if, if the White Sox act, actually shifted more, these games would be a lot closer because they just choose to play straight up. So, like, if he's on board with everything, whatever. How bad can it really be, right, if he's on board with everything? Not that bad. Really not that bad. But if he decides to be a Cavalier and a Maverick to a certain extent that ends up being dangerous to what the front office is trying to do, then it could be an issue. It definitely could be an issue. And that's what we are trying to avoid. And that's why there is so much pushback, at least for me and James, as for Buck Showalter for the manager. Now, of course, we talked about Twitter a lot. Let's bring up a certain tweet by uh, Howie Rose, because I think this really does sum up how a lot of Mets fans on Twitter feel. Especially in that that age range. Yeah, and if you look at the replies on Twitter, there's quite the brainwashing going on on Twitter right now about Buck Showalter. But let's go ahead and read it out. And uh, we'll give our thoughts and opinions on this. All right. So Howie Rose said, in this age of analytics, it would be great if a manager had the gravitas. So I alluded to this before using the word gravitas because that's our SAT word of the week for everyone at home. That'd be a crazy word to break out anyway. It would be great if a manager had the gravitas to say, thanks for the data. 
Now run along, Poindexter, and I'll make out the lineup. But that's not reality. So suggest that Buck could not be collaborative and insulting to him and other veteran managers. That sentence is legendary. Run along, Poindexter. I'll make out the lineup. I bet someone said that to Howie Rose when he was like 11 years old. Oh, without a doubt. Howie Rose would be the dork in this scenario. <laughs> of course. That's we what's lo- confusing to me. And again, I don't want this to be uh, mistaken as, as uh, bemoaning oh. Howie Rose. I love Howie Rose. I can't even imagine my life without Howie Rose in it. I purposely listen to games on the radio because I love Howie Rose so goddamn much. He's he's just an elder statesman. That's yeah. what it is. With age comes these, you know, crotchety takes, which are going to happen. Definitely, but the take that Howie here had here, which is, I'd say, relatively fair, is that it is probably not the coolest thing to suggest that Buckshaw Walter could not collaborate with the data people. And that is insulting to him. But I just, I, I would call it more of an inference. Than a suggestion. Yeah. Like I just think, based on what we know about Buck Showalter, he probably would be less likely to collaborate in a in a f- effective and positive and open minded way than a guy like Joe Espada, who has made an emphasis in his career to be around data and use it to the best of his capabilities. Which it seems like he would be, and that's why I'm more willing to go with him, because he's been a part of organizations that have been doing this, and he's been a part of it, and he sees how it works. So therefore, he understands how things are done. Where Buck Showalter, the last time he managed was with the Orioles, and that was many, many moons ago. It wasn't even that long ago. I can't believe his last year was actually 2018. That's shockingly recent. Whoa, hold on. 2018? <laughs> yes, that was the last time he managed with the Orioles. Oh my god, it feels like he's been out of baseball for 10 years. I know, Baseball's right? changed a lot in that time A as ton. Well. He was a manager of the team in 2018 that won 47 games. And I think it is fair to say that players have had some good things to say about Buck. I mean, Adam Jones came out and no, raved about I'm him. I'm sure and... Buck Showalter's a hell of a baseball guy, a hell of a baseball mind. I'm sure there are a lot of things he can add. I just think there's other people who could add more. Yes, and I just I'm afraid of the worst case scenario, which would be that Buck Walter comes in, bamboozles us, and does whatever he wants, and that's just not going to work. Definitely, and this is also coming from a place where I don't think either of us are as afraid of this concept of a first time manager coming in and kind of getting a call with his pants down. I just don't see that as something that could happen. I think that did happen to Mickey Calloway, but that was more of the way he handled the media. I think Rojas wasn't great, but I don't think he was the demise of this team, and I think that some people just kind of see a lot of similarities between Espada and Rojas, and that scares them away, which is true to a degree, but I also don't think it really is at all. No, I think, you know, um, it's comparing apples to oranges. Like, they're both fruit. They're both first-time managers, but they're very different. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's funny. I also do (laughs) think that... In modern baseball, especially when you look at the Mets, who they have two like pretty prized jewels who you hope to be on this team within the next 24 months, who are, as we know, much more comfortable speaking Spanish than English. I think it helps to have multiple people inside of a dugout that are fully and wholly fluently bilingual. Yeah, you can't really understate how important that is. We couldn't talk to Francisco Alvarez in English. I don't. I don't. I don't think that Buckshaw Walter could either. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm gonna, again. Maybe it's unfair of us to assume this, but I, I get. Well, if Buckshaw Walter is fluent in Spanish. Someone tweeted me. I will publicly correct my mistake and address address the gaffe I've made. But I just, I'm just assuming he isn't or doesn't. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm assuming the same thing. And listen, uh, we've been talking about the manager for like 20 minutes now. What it comes down to is, we just want the best guy who's going to give the Mets the best chance to win. If that is Buck Showalter and he proves that he can do it, again, I'll be happy to be wrong just like we were with Billy Yeah, Apple. thrilled. If this, if this is just the way that we start jinxing people from now on, like that'd be okay too. I just want to make yeah. sure it's someone who is ready for the challenge and is going to listen to everything that people tell him. Yep, and whoever it is, uh, 
Get the right guy. That's all I'm asking for. Get the right guy. And take your time because there's absolutely no fucking rush at all right now because as everyone in the baseball world knows, and if you don't, we're about to tell you, we locked out last week and things are dead. No baseball activities. Players can't talk to coaches. They can't talk to doctors. They can't talk to staff. They can't do anything. Jameson Tyone, I know he's not a Met, but a Yankee tweeted about it. he's like i guess i'll just take off my boot now i i don't know what to do like <laughs> these are my doctors yeah he's like i i gotta go find a, a personal doctor now that's crazy so like that would be such a pain in the ass if these doctors take care of you every single day for years and then you're like can i have my records and they're like no <laughs> you don't exist <laughs> it's gone that's so brutal but we want to break this down a little bit because some people ask for it and it's like pretty convoluted and complicated and we're not going to break it down that much one because this is all we're going to have for a few months and two, neither of us are attorneys or like accomplished business professionals. So it's hard to really fully understand what's happening besides what we're taking in specifically from journalists and what we can pull from quotes from guys like Tony Clark and Rob Manfred. But we're going to try. And I think we're going to do kind of a good job. Yeah, basically the way that this is working is that the collective bargaining agreement expired on December 2nd, right, at midnight. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, the collective bargaining agreement is essentially the set of rules that Major League Baseball players and the owners agree to. It governs baseball. It's like the laws for a society that those are the laws for baseball. Yes, and a big, 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 big part of it is revenue sharing because while the players you know, do get paid quite a bit of money themselves, the big catching point or the big breaking point right now is the revenue sharing, and that's why we're having this big lockout and this big stalemate is because owners, of course, want to get more money and spend less and players want to get as much money as possible. This is where we're having the big problem. This is where we're having the big debate. There's minute things like the DH and how many playoff teams and all this other stuff. But really, at the end of the day, there's a lot of money on the table, and both sides want as much as possible. The other big deal that's being talked about a lot that's kind of at the forefront of this negotiation is service time. The fact that it takes players six years to get to free agency and takes most players three years to get to arbitration unless they're super two eligible. And right now, the players, like their firm demands are knocking a year off service time free agency, making it five instead of six, knocking off a year until you get to arbitration. So every single player is a two-year arbitration guy, so they just select ones of them depending on service time, which is a convoluted equation that you literally almost can't find anywhere. Like I, It's just not really even public. And then they want to bring up the minimum salary because that's something that's been stagnant somehow for 10 years in the in terms of like in, in the face of like hyperinflation and then so much more money being invested into this game based on TVs, contracts, everything. Yes, and the owner's stance in Rob Manfred is that the way that the players are coming to the table, baseball will no longer basically can't cease to can no longer cease to exist. No, that's a double negative. It, it, will, double it will, negative. will cease to exist. It will cease to exist. There we go. This is why we got you, James. You got, <laughs> you're the words guy. Words even man. though I make videos every day. Yeah. But the way that the players are doing it, baseball can't exist. Mm-hmm. It won't work. It's not possible. The teams that are at the bottom in terms of money and payroll and salary will not be able to compete with the teams like the Mets, which is a crazy sentence, like the Dodgers, like the Red Sox, like the, the Yankees. I can't believe I forgot that. But <laughs> it, to me, like, I don't know, outside looking in, again, I don't know everybody's financials, but that's bullshit. That is. It's definitely partially bullshit. I think the owners are doing a lot of posturing right now because the last talk that they had was last Tuesday, the day, the afternoon before, the last day before the deal was to expire. And it was a big meeting. It was a whole big sh- like rigmarole where they all got to seven minutes. They all got together. I think it was 15 technically, actually. But the owners, the shiesty ass motherfuckers came to the deal and offered the players a pre-deal. So like a deal before the deal, a fake deal, a half of a deal, really. They wouldn't even reveal the entire deal that they offered, and all conveniently this happened during the flurry of moves that were going on, so it really went under the rug. I'm sure 
most baseball fans were even completely unaware of it going on because this was like moments. This was like right around like I think it was day after Max Scherzer signed, but a lot of chaos still going on last Tuesday. Player movement. The owners wouldn't reveal the entire offer, but they would guarantee no stoppage of the collective, like no no work stoppage at all, an immediate like set set to the table, basically signing a pre deal. If the players agree to drop, this is the list. The desire to raise the luxury tax uh, threshold. They're wanting to knock a year each off of free agency and arbitration, and their claim to want to re- not their claim and their um request and their request to to reduce revenue sharing by a clean hundred million on like off the top. So with all those things off the table, the players don't really have much at all to talk about besides raising the minimum like the salary like the min- the minimum player salary. So they told the owners to fuck off, and actually Tony Clark said they don't even consider what that was as an actual proposal, and that seemed to be uh, the ter- the point where it was very official that the bad blood was going to begin. And the thing that's so frustrating, too, is that Rob Manfred then in his letter to the fans tried to paint it like the uh, the players are unreasonable and will not negotiate and fair and, you know, collectively when it's such nonsense when they're like, okay, so here's the deal. And if you don't take it, despite not having anything that you want in there and not seeing the entire deal, they still wouldn't have seen what they would have brought to the table as news for revenue sharing, what they would have brought to the table as a new salary minimum. So it was really just a complete, I don't even know what to call it. I, I, it, was just, it, was just, it was disrespectful was what it was. It seems like they did it so that when the players inevitably did say no to it, they'd be like, well, we, we gave them an offer and they said no. We have this corny-ass leather prepared, so we're going to tell all the fans that you guys are being difficult. And Manfred clapped back with that leather, which again, I, just, I don't even think it was, it's worth the time of day if you haven't read it. It's disrespectful. Really, it's painful. It's mean. He had a couple quotes like publicly that have gone around since, and one really specifically stuck out to me. And he said that things like a short and reserve period prior to free agency, a $100 million reduction in revenue sharing, and salary arbitration for the whole two-year class are bad for the sport, bad for the fans, and bad for the competitive balance. And I want to tell you, as a glimmer of hope for all of our pro-labor, pro-union, and pro-players out there, that that offers... A, just a nice little like shot right through the owners where I could see them possibly faction and break this thing up after a few months. This will go on minimum for a few months. Like No one can get their hopes up. This will be done a second before February. Question. Yes. And I don't know if you have the answer, but the $100 million reduction, so that would be amongst the team's revenue, correct? I don't know exactly what that means. That's again. like $3.3 million a team. I guess basically $100 million moves less because revenue sharing isn't like it all goes around. Like Basically, yeah. the 15 richest teams in baseball will money will flow from them to the 15 poorest teams in baseball. And there's other things that flow from the rich teams to the poor teams. Not everyone knows this, but in also with the competitive balance rules, the 14 or 12 uh, poorest teams in baseball get extra picks in the draft every single year and extra slot butt money for the international signing pool. That's how teams like the Rays and the A's are very consistently able to max out their pool and sign the best guys out there and be able to compete with teams like the Yankees because they'll have more of a budget to do so. It's very interesting, and it's something that's really swept under the rug. And if you look at the end of the MLB drafts, first and second round, they have what's called the competitive balance rounds, where a couple teams will get a couple picks sprinkled in, seemingly for no reason, and it'll kind of alternate whether by year some teams will get the pick at the end of the first round and those teams will get a bigger bonus of uh, slot money. And some teams will get an extra pick at the end of the second round. Those teams will still get slot money, but a little bit less. Uh, precedent's already been set where the owners, owners, certain teams are getting certain benefits because of their lack of intrinsic lack of value that other teams do not. So there just really could be a way that the rich owners would love to op- reopen up those competitive balance negotiations 
give the players what they want, get them to free agency quicker, and to be able to sign them for more money than the other teams have to offer while they're still closer to their primes. Which especially is funny too now because you are seeing some of the lower payroll teams become very, very good, like the Rays and the Brewers in this competitive balance thing is supposed to help the teams that have lesser payrolls, but it's actually making them into the mega giants that they're becoming right now and the tougher teams. So the rich teams are going, why are we helping one of our competitors who are getting this stuff because they're being told that they can't compete without it? Why are we helping them out when they're still one of the best teams in baseball? A team like the Rays, for example, last year had almost a complete net zero between the money they pulled into revenue sharing and their team's payroll, $76 million. So that every single dollar that the Rays actually made was house money at that point. And they could stash that into player development, into hiring more analysts, more data, more numbers, more engineers. Like that is the kind of way that you can defeat the Giants. And I just really think that some of these owners, like namely Steve Cohen, want so badly to have a full season this year that's going to be ready to rip and more time to run this through this free agency window, that there's really a pathway for the owners of the rich and poor teams to fracture before the players do. Because if you've listened to Scherzer and Boris and Tony Clark talk, even over the last few months, even if you go back to the last few years, everyone was very clear since the 2016 CBA negotiation this was going to happen. And that year 2016 I also think is kind of important because I feel like was like kind of the crux of when more information starts to flow into baseball. Everyone starts to be more aware of their value and the value of the people around them. Apparently the players have this gigantic trust that they've been building for the last five years that they've been paying into consistently. So if push comes to shove and this, they do get locked out for a while, there is money to be dispersed to the guys making the minimum, which I think is kind of a beautiful thing. No, it's, it kind of does put a little bit more pressure on the owners. And I think like... A lot of stuff. It's a lot of he said, she said. It's a lot of name call, and it's it's like kind of in the ugly stages right now. But what you were talking about with like these these owners maybe being split and guys probably pushing forward as it gets closer and closer. I do believe that the season's going to be on time, and I know that might be a hot take right now based on how things feel. But there is simply too much money on the table, and it really feels like the only person that lose besides the fans are the owners because it hits them where it counts, and that's the wallet. Definitely, and I could see both of these groups really posturing right now. This probably is what's going on. Like I could see the players not really having as much money in that reserve as maybe they'd like people think, and I could see the owners being pretty willing to bend on a couple of those points like we said before they wouldn't bend for at that final meeting. But you just have to think, guys like Cohen, Hal Steinbrunner, Magic Johnson, the fucking rich-ass Guggenheim group, John Henry, I could see those guys flaking, giving the players everything they wanted because at the end of the day, that will make their teams potentially stronger because they're willing to fork out more money and they'll be getting a more valuable portion of players' careers if they push arbitration and free agency a year earlier. I also wonder if some of the like poorer teams, like Bob Castellani, I think has the lowest net worth of any owner, and maybe he's not the what best team example, is that? but I want the Reds. Oh, I, th- I actually have a tweet I was going to talk about later. It's the, Pir- uh, the Marlins are the lowest. But, go, but go I on. was going to say, I wonder if the fact that... like. This could be a huge way that these owners or these people who own these teams actually accumulate their wealth. They're not going to want to miss out on that either. It feels like it would just be so foolish to really screw this thing up when there's so much money and everyone's going to make so much. Not that you're talking about pennies on the dollar, but to these millionaires and billionaires, it's really just... It's nitpicking at this point, it feels like. Definitely. and But the thing is with these billionaires, these are different class of billionaires, and they have very different thoughts and ideas. Like these poorer owners, poorer owners, these these guys with just a single billion, they yeah. really don't want a salary floor like really, really fucking badly. That's a critical point for a lot of these guys. Steve Cohen, Hal Steinberg, Magic Johnson, they don't care about a salary floor. They can kind of hold that over an internal negotiation with the other owners. 
as long as these they like leave in a revenue share to really ensure their own dominance. And like there's a chart that came out from at is Rosenbum Rosen Jordan Blum. He writes for Dynasty Guru. Been, been following each other for a while. He's a sharp. He's a sharp young man. I think. I'm assuming. I, I don't know. I could be incorrect. <laughs> And basically, just shows like how much these teams' valuations have increased since 2004. It's kind of an arbitrary start date, but I think 17 years is a pretty good place to be. In 2004, the average value of a franchise was half of a billion dollars less, for like four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred twenty thousand dollars exactly. Million. Yeah. Oh my God. I wish it was four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. The average cost of a franchise was four hundred twenty million dollars, less than half a billion. Right now, in the lower year of 2021, that number's nearly $2 billion, 1.91. And of course, that's a little bit skewed by a team like the Yankees, who's valued like $5.2 billion. Or the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Giants, the Mets, who are all valued clean over $2 billion. Some of those other teams over $3 billion. But you look at the teams that are the least valuable in the league right now, is the Marlins, the Rays, the Royals, the Reds, the A's. All of those teams are at or around a billion dollars clean. So that's a pretty decent spot to be, where I'm sure you have some wiggle room to manage your baseball team in a way where you spend more than like 40, 50, 60, or $70 million a year. I was going to bring up the Marlins because they had that you know historic sale when they sold the team to the Jeter group or whatever we're going to call that. And this is an organization that has no branding, Mm-mm. no fan base, Mm-mm. has a hard time generating revenue. There's The only thing that's worth or I guess has any value to the Marlins or of the Marlins is that they are an established Major League Baseball franchise in a major city. That's literally it. They're at the floor of value right now. It can't be yeah. worse. It can't get worse, and it's $1 billion fucking dollars. And that number is up from somewhere around like a couple like a couple hundred million dollars just 17 years ago. So that return on investment in a 17-year window is something that people will literally like try to kill themselves over to get money like that in that period of time. And I think owners like to throw around, you know, like um, operating at a loss, right? And it's like kind of that big business speak as well. These owners aren't losing money. We need to make that very, very clear. There is no losing of money really with these owners. They're just making less than the year prior or less than the projected values. And that was a big thing with the whole uh, 2020 lockout from COVID as well, which I think is also playing to why these are super, super hostile as well is because the players got bent over a barrel in that. Big but, time. It's just like the the way that they're speaking and the way that all the the word and the jargon and stuff that's coming out right now, it's very much anti-player. And really, at the end of the day, the players are what make Major League Baseball. The teams are just a vehicle to just monetize these players. It, it feels so crazy to me when I see people take the owner side and not the players. Doesn't make any sense. As fans, like we should want these players who are just simply worth less than these owners when push comes to shove to get everything they can. Like The game becomes great because of them. The fact they need to have every opportunity possible to become great baseball players because that's at the end of the day all we want to see is great baseball players doing great things and we should also make a distinction that when we say these teams are valued a billion dollars of course these guys don't have a billion dollars sitting in their bank account it's not just like i can spend a billion so let me spend 100 million on this 100 million on that that's not how it works but basically the fact that these guys have been so green for so many years now that there's no reason to say that they can't be tr- everyone can't be trying to win every single year or at least tanking with a purpose rather yeah. than just tanking into oblivion seeing if you can come up green and get lucky and compete when you're ready to again yeah which there have been a lot of franchises i mean even there there are some franchises that have some super rich owners that don't care about competing and spending money namely the indians and the a's the guardians both of those yeah oh yeah the guardians i keep calling them the indians the guardians both of those owners i believe are in the top 10 of net worth in major league baseball and the a's shockingly because i know the dolan family's just got endless money we know that with the knicks yeah but the a's guy uh bobby fisher or whatever his name is it's worth like $3.9 billion or something like that. $2.9 billion. Again, like you said, it's not money that they can just spend. John Fisher. Two point, J- 
John Fisher. He doesn't have like $2.9 billion that he's like, okay, I could just start writing checks. Yeah. But the idea that the A's operate as one of the lowest payroll teams every year and trade away all this great talent. And granted, they have been able to compete still, but they could put together some great teams and they're just okay with being good enough. And that's that's the problem I think that players have a lot too, is that really if you are a player who wants to be on a winning team and get paid, you only have about a handful of teams that you can realistically go to. And the Royals and the Pirates and the Reds the aren't the Reds. They're not they're not any of those teams. No, they're not. And it's a shame because you would think that owning a baseball team, the number one thing in your mind would be competition. And just yep. the fact that these guys are willing to completely flounder and just not even try to win baseball games, which should be the entire reason you're in this game at all, is a little bit upsetting. And I think there needs to be measures taken that stop that. And I think a salary floor is something that's very likely to happen. And I think that is something that could turn the owners against one another and create some kind of victory for the players. And at the end of the day, a victory for Steve Cohen, the Mets, which is really what I more care about here. But I want the players to get their due. But the players getting their due means the Mets will be in a better spot, and I like that a lot. Yes. Oh, the Mets are in the Mets are in the driver's seat here. There's kind of almost no way that they lose unless there's a salary cap put in place. But even then, we'd have to be grandfathered in or something with how much money we spend. And I also wonder how much of Steve Cohen's you know, spending this offseason and the fact that he's just blown through the luxury tax is going to rub off on the owners and how they're going to feel about that too, knowing that, holy shit, this this guy who's worth $13 billion just came in and just said, I don't fucking care. All my money's gone. And a lot of the teams who were closer to that, uh, to that, what was previously known as the competitive balance tax, uh, the luxury tax threshold, were the ones who weren't very active during this window, specifically the Astros, the Yankees, and the Red Sox, three teams that were have been up against that for a lot of years now and decided to kind of hold back and wait to see what the rules were. So I think I think Steve Cohen's going to have a pretty significant share of the headlines that come out of this negotiation. I think that there's a world where he can become a champion of the players. I think that would be great for his uh, gravitas to bring this back to the Howie, Howie Rose word. It would be sick if Steve Cohen became a champion for the players. He's got the most money in baseball, plays in the biggest market in all of sports. Like, Fuck these cheapskates. And he's for the players. He goes, I'll pay you what you... I just paid 37-year-old Max Scherzer $43 million a year. I don't fucking care. You're going to help us win? You can play here. I think that's a world that can happen. I think there is this faction of owners that could turn this entire negotiation on its head. I think it'll be interesting to see if that happens. A fun storyline in a world where it's every other shred of logic points to the players just getting taken advantage of for the upteenth time in sports labor negotiations. Yeah, really hope that the players get a W on this one. And really, at the end of the day... I just need baseball back. Just the fact yes, that we're we probably going to go a month and a half, two months of just literally nothing happening besides negotiations and whatever we actually hear goes on sucks. And that's not good for the game of baseball. That's a loss for the game of baseball because there was so much hype, especially after the 2021 season where we had young stars like Juan Soto, Tatis, uh, Shohei Otani, Vlad Guerrero Jr. do such great things for the game and grow the game so much. To have this black cloud that's you know been looming over baseball after the other black cloud of the cheating scandals, and then the black cloud of the cheating with the the sticky stuff, and there's just like all these weird negative things that Major League Baseball puts onto the sport that is trying desperately to break away from it. You can even pull like Major League Baseball scandals and chaos all the way back up until the last strike in the '90s. The la- that last strike in 1994 killed baseball's popularity to a point it's literally never gotten back. You know, Saris on the most recent Rates and Barrels podcast pointed out the fact that. MLB still has not gotten back to their World Series ratings and, and like TV ratings that they were at in the late 80s and early 90s. Still, to this day, they never recovered. A lot of people after that strike said, fuck this sport. And that is something serious that's going to happen. It's just a shame that we're looking that down the barrel after one of the most popular years in the modern era of baseball. 
Yeah, and it sucks. Uh, the the way baseball artificially got it back was let everybody cheat and take steroids, which we also know is another black cloud around the sport. Like That still didn't get it back to those levels, though. It still didn't get back to where it was. Even to this yeah. day, it still has never gotten back to where it was. Yep, and uh, it's, it's not a good look for baseball. I mean, any final thoughts here on this? Because it's just... We want baseball back. I really feel like that's kind of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're going to talk about this probably a little bit each episode because there's going to be not that much else to talk about at all besides like fun stuff that we're going to do together. So maybe we'll save some more of these facts and stuff. But I think this was a very good introduction for anyone that didn't know anything about it. And it was fun to research, honestly. Yeah, no, I mean, like the labor negotiations, while suck, you know, from the outside looking in, there is a lot of uh, nuances and intricacies to these things that are quite fascinating. And hopefully as we learn them as well, we'll, we'll tell you guys all about it. We got a weekly podcast right now. We got to come up with content. We will tell you anything that we know. Literally, we're fine to talk on here for an hour every single week. That's easy. Yes, which we basically have this episode. Uh, do you want to talk about the Hall of Fame ballot real quick? Because why not? At least, shout out, we got to shout out Gil Hodges. Yeah, shout Gil Hodges. Finally made it. Long time coming. Uh, again, a lot of the Howie Rose type Met fans are super excited about that because he just, you know, he deserved to be in there. The Mets did kill Gil Hodges, but... They killed Gil Hodges! <laughs> yeah, I had to bring that back from Don LaGreca. Don? Dom? Don. Don LaGreca. Don yeah. LaGreca. We're legendary. Legendary. Yeah. But uh, good to see Gil Hodges get in the Hall of Fame. Definitely. Also a big day for a lot of former Negro League stars. Minnie Minoso, um, Buck O'Neill. Yeah. There was another one, right? And then Tony Oliva. I don't think he was a Negro League No, guy. he was a Reds guy. And then um, Dick yeah. Allen didn't get in somehow, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. One of the nonsense. better baseball players that, that was played in that era, like 70s, late 70s or 60s. He was awesome. He was awesome. Missed it by one vote. Damn. This is going to be, uh, you know, he, he'll get in eventually. That's the good thing here. But, but the Veterans Committee, they typically don't miss. And they did a good job with this, you know, group of four. All four of these are well, deserving. Errol Baines they let in, which was ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, I hate that whole conversation because it's so awkward to, like, just you know, shit on a guy for what is probably one of the most, like, proud achievements of his life. Yeah. So it's like, I, I always feel so bad doing it, but like, yeah, guy's not a Hall of Famer. No, definitely not. And I are we sure this wasn't a third, another guy that was brought in? It was just Minoso and Buck O'Neill? It was Minoso, Buck O'Neill, Jim Min- Minoso. I think it's pronounced Minoso. Well, then, well, I don't know what Enya is doing I, now. I, I really, I've only ever heard it Mini Minoso, but you're probably right. The, the Enya. Yeah, based on the way it's spelled, Mini Minoso. Um, yes, but... That guy and Jim Cott as well, who's okay. uh, on MLB the show all the MLB the show MLB Network all the time. He he was a good pitcher. Have you seen what's going on at MLB Network recently? No, they can't show highlights of players. They're no longer associated with the league, so they're just doing random shit. You haven't seen this? Well, I mean, there's been no baseball to talk about, so why am I going to watch Everyone, MLB Network? Everyone, after you listen to this, should tune into MLB Network for just three or four minutes because I'm sure it's going to be chaos. They're showing clips of guys from the '80s. Guys who are That's unaffiliated so with Major funny. League Baseball because they can't show them. That's funny. I know, like, they took off all the names and or all the pictures on MLB.com. And so petty. So petty. There's a thought that for MLB The Show, might not be able to release the game on time because all the player likeness stuff. That's kind of insane, honestly. Which would really suck. But, I don't know, CBA, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Hall of Fame, Javi Baez, manager. We talked a lot in this episode. I think uh, it's a perfect place to wrap it up. Would you agree? Yeah, I think this was a great episode, if I'm going to be honest with us. Yeah, we've, we always got great episodes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toot our own horn here. We always have a great episode, and that's because you guys listen, and the listeners keep growing, and we appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Uh, we got up to the number, what, eight, eight. ranked podcast? Number one independently produced, so shout out you guys for sticking with us through this uh, yeah. first trying year. The big name, the big media name attached would be mine, and I am definitely not a company of media yeah. by any sorts. And we, we got You got to get my name on that thing. That's insane. It's rude. I know. I, I, I don't know how to do it, but <laughs> I will look into it. <laughs> Well, look into it. The fact that it just says Mark Luino is disrespectful. Unbelievably mean. <laughs> 
But hey, James is a big part of this. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. He just hit 3K followers from Twitter Spaces. So big time. Thanks to you guys for following James and supporting the podcast, as well mm-hmm. as the podcast Twitter has been growing like crazy. Let's wrap it up now. Episode number 65 of the Messed Up Podcast. That's all we got for you guys. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Messed Up. YouTube channel for the YouTube version of it, Messed Up Podcast. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Wherever you can listen, you can find us. Drop us a rating. Drop us a review. We'll see you on the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast, episode number 66. Peace out, guys. Peace out, guys. Thanks for listening.